Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is off the podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview episode. Very excited for today's guest, Ridian Cowley, two-time Olympian, Rio and Tokyo in the sport of race walking. We have not had a race walker on this show since Evan Dunphy, who was our very first guest that we had way back in 2016, just after the Rio Olympics. Of course, Evan finished fourth in Rio, went on to win the bronze in Tokyo in the event that Ridian finished 8th in the 50km walk and this is a great chat with Ridian gets into the details about the sport learns, uh, teaches us I should say how he got involved in race walking the techniques involved and whether or not there's sort of crossover when it comes to runners maybe switching over to walking or vice versa and just a real great insight into his career and everything that he has gone through to become a dual Olympian so fascinating chat that I know you will enjoy stay for the talk on race walking and continue to stay for the talk about cats because, as you'll see, I get a little bit excited during this chat when it comes to cat talk. Here's our chat with dual Olympian Ridian Cowley. Another great interview coming your way today on Off the Podium as we continue a series of chats with Athletes from Tokyo in the lead up to Beijing, we're covering all aspects of both versions of the Olympics. But today, we have a Tokyo athlete who, at the time of recording this, is still locked down in quarantine, having a grand old time, and has returned from the Games with a personal best and a career best finish in the race walk, in the 50-kilometer race walk. He finished in eighth position with a personal best time, and prior to that, competed at the Rio Olympics back in 2016 in the 20-kilometer race walk. He's a world championship competitor, a Commonwealth Games competitor, and one thing that I'm also very intrigued to get to the bottom of in this interview is a cat sitter which I'm maybe more excited to learn more about uh, across the way. It's a pleasure to welcome to Off the Podium, Ridian Cowley. Ridian, first of all, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you today. Great. Thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, it's exciting always to chat to any Olympian, but particularly those who have sort of come back from Tokyo, very unique games, and, and the whole aspect of uh, quarantine. How, how's it going right now? At the time of recording this, are you counting down the minutes and days until you're out, or are you actually weirdly enjoying kind of having two weeks alone to yourself? Uh, yeah, I haven't really been trying to think too much about uh, counting down. I, I'm not sure that that would be uh, the best strategy for me to get through. I've just been trying to keep busy with lots of different things. So uh, there's been quite a few opportunities to do some school talks, uh, so, sort of organised through um, the Victorian Institute of Sport. And I've also had a few uh, friends who were teachers that have, have asked me as well to speak to their students, which has been great and probably helpful for them as well uh, in lockdown. Um, and then, yeah... You know, reading books, watching movies, uh, chatting with uh, friends and family as well. It's um, 
you know, good to have a mix of uh, activities to choose from just to keep yourself um, busy. And uh, we've also been pretty lucky here that we can uh, hire some exercise bikes. So I've got an exercise bike in my room and just been riding on that uh, each day and doing a few body weight exercises as well, just so that um, I haven't lost in all my fitness by the time I get out. <laughs> and with all the care packages, we we're just talking about that off air a little bit too. You guys are getting sent a, a myriad of goodies as well. I mean, I guess it's also burning all that weight you're putting on with all the chocolate and food you're being given right now. <laughs> Yeah, or um, stockpiling or hoarding it and figuring out how we're going to get it all home. <laughs> what's I've the weirdest care been, package you've got? Like what's sort of some of the stuff you've been getting? Uh, so, um, yeah, Procter & Gamble, I think, uh, sent us a bunch of um, sort of like shampoos, shaving, hand cream sort of things. Uh, Qantas sent uh, some wine and uh, sort of some pyjamas and uh, toiletries. I've got... Yeah, donuts from for some from some friends from Park Run. Uh, right. Chocolates. Uh, got some some books and uh, coffee and uh, a uh, press as well from uh, some my uh, fiance back at home. So wow. Uh, yeah, been been really spoiled and yeah, I think it's probably going to be a little bit too much uh, left over. So I've actually been making some inquiries <laughs> with uh, the Olympic uh, Committee and and with Queensland Health to see if there's any. Sort of avenue to if there's stuff that I can't fit home and I uh, don't think that I'll use to to donate that to charity somewhere to just to make sure it's fantastic. not wasted. Yeah, great idea with that. Oh, fantastic. Good to hear. It's actually interesting, Ridian. Our, our very first guest we had on Off the Podium post-Rio, this was literally, I think, in the weeks after Rio, uh, was a race walk. We had Evan Dunphy, of course, just got the bronze medal in the, uh, the 50K in Tokyo. And it's kind of a bit strange to me that it's taken us so long to get another race walker on the show because it's it's a sport in Australia that, I mean, we've got an esteemed history in it. I mean, we've had a few Sydney Olympians and recently, and I mean, everyone remembers Jane Savile's uh, sort of incident there, but then you've got Jared Talent, Nathan Deeks, Dane Bird-Smith, you know, all medalists post-Sydney. So it's a, an esteemed sport for Australia. So I'm intrigued to find out how you sort of got involved in, in race walking. Was it a case of watching some of these athletes or was it something that else that kind of brought you into the sport? Um, yeah, so I suppose I first encountered race walking at uh, Little Athletics when I was uh, eight, I think it was. Um, and yeah, it was just one of the event groups along with some of the distance running that I was naturally pretty good at. So um, that was, you know, when you're young, it's always a, a bit of a motivator when you're a could it something to, to stick with it a bit but um yeah definitely i was i think nine years old when um sydney olympics uh, happened and uh yeah definitely was watching the walks as uh, part of that i remember uh, polish walker robert Korzanowski won the 20k 50k double there and um maybe it's fitting that uh, then that uh, in uh, tokyo my race was uh, won by another polish walker who uh, yeah had a really uh, uh, bold strategy and it paid off for him Came, came full circle, basically, uh, all that way around. Because it's so interesting, like, just thinking of Sydney and, and Jane Savile and kind of everything along those lines. Because, I mean, growing up myself, having watched the Olympics, I don't really remember a whole lot of, I guess, publicity or sort of things around the race walking. And that just kind of really put it out there. And I, I think with Jane, sort of that emotional journey when she got the bronze in, in Athens as well to kind of see that come full circle. But it's such a unique sport because... From the armchair critic myself who's watching it, and I'm going like, you're not you're not walking, that's running. Like, I mean, it, it just looks like this sort of version of, of running. I mean, do you remember the first time when you sort of younger and you said you, you got good of it? Do you remember the first time trying it and kind of, I guess, trying to adapt to the the, the, the unique style that is race walking? Uh, so, yeah, usually when people try race walking, uh, you, you find out pretty quickly whether it 
the technique comes to you naturally or not. Um, and usually it's uh, the people where it comes a bit more naturally to them that uh, they stick around. And uh, it was something that came a little bit more naturally uh, to me. But um, yeah, you know, just because it comes naturally to you, you still got to train and practice a lot to get your body used to, to walking. I think something that pretty much everyone that tries it, um, what they experience is if you try to walk for a few hundred metres, because you're trying to pull your toes up all the time to land on your heel uh, when your lead leg's landing, you know, your, your shins are having to do a lot of work against your, your calves. And so uh, very quickly you just get your short, your shin, uh, shins are just absolutely killing you. So, um, yeah, you know, it takes, takes a lot of practice, but uh, we, as with anything, you can uh, yeah, get really good at it over time and uh, hopefully make it uh, look easy. But, uh, yeah, I haven't really thought about it uh, in terms of um, – whether it's how close it is to running or not, I guess obviously the um, the whole aim of it is, is to go as fast as you can without running. So you're going to be pushing right up against the line. But it's always funny um, training outside on, on bike paths or whatnot. And sometimes you'll pass a um, parent and their child walking uh, uh, the other direction and then you'll just hear in the background, why is that man walking funny? Or why is that, why is that man running funny? So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a way to entertain. Kind of, kind of also, I guess, didn't help the whole Kath and Kim phase, right? Where that kind of almost made a bit of. I mean, or did it help? Is it the other way around? Maybe oh, did no, that kind I, of add a shining light to it? I love, I love that stuff um, as well. <laughs> like pe- people who uh, grew up in the uh, early two thousands might remember uh, Malcolm in the Middle. There was also an episode oh, yeah. uh, there where um, Hal, so um, the same actor Brian Cranston that plays um, in uh, Breaking Bad, I think that's Lord probably his uh, yeah. um, most famous role. Uh, he he was the, the dad in that show, and I remember he that got episode, really yeah. really invested in race walking in this episode. And um, you know, I, I love funny things like that. There was also probably a bit more niche to uh, race walkers um, and Japanese people. Is um, in the lead up to the 2007 World Championships in Osaka, the uh, reigning world champion and world record holder was uh, pranked by Japanese TV. Um, they set him up that some dangerous samurai had broken out of a nearby prison and then he was doing a training session and these samurai broke into his uh, training venue and chased after him. And it was just because the Japanese wanted to see if he was in life-threatening danger, whether he'd run or walk. <laughs> and did he? He, 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 did ran, he, but he oh. ran, but um, he actually slowed down initially when he started running and then accelerated. <laughs> Wow, that's something I need to see. Because, I mean, it kind of like it's it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people will probably think about it with Kath and Kim, Malcolm Middle, kind of it's almost, I want to say mocked, but it, at the same time, it's, I guess, if it's done in a, a you know, good spirits, it's kind of something that it's it's not done in an offensive way. It's bringing some sort of attention to the sport at least. Yeah, yeah, and I think with those um, TV shows, yeah, it hasn't hasn't been mocked. It's, uh, it's been... Uh... Yeah, quite quite a funny way to in, engage with people and introduce them to a bit of a, a weird sport. And uh, you know, I think if you're a race walker and you can't laugh at yourself, um, <laughs> you, you're probably going to have have a bit of a tough time. So, uh, I, I, I like to laugh at those things. Uh, it's usually pretty funny. Is it a sport with much transition? Do you, do you find you'll have uh, sprinters or, or runners uh, who maybe aren't sort of achieving what they want to, and they give race walking a try? Is it something you can kind of transition easily from running into race walking? Um, I think particularly for elite walkers, it seems like the majority of people sort of pick it up um, during their childhood years, maybe their teenage uh, years when they're trying athletics. Um, There's a few examples that I'm aware of of people picking it up later in life. So there's a New Zealand race walker, Quentin Rue. He's been to three Olympics now and he was living in Melbourne uh, the last few years. I think he's quarantining in 
uh, New Zealand at the moment, but uh, yeah, we've been training together in the lead up to uh, Tokyo and um, he only picked up race walking when he was, I think, 24 because of some running uh, injuries that he had meant that he couldn't really uh, run much at all anymore. So um, that does happen, but I think the majority of it from that elite perspective is, is people just picking it up and that's the event that they're good at when they're um, at school. So when you're discovering this talent you've got sort of going along with, with the race walking, was, was there sort of moments going along that where you wanted to kind of pursue this? Did the Olympics sort of as a young age become a, a goal or was this sort of something that kind of came to you the more and more you advanced with the race walking? Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, some people, some athletes are just really, really driven from a young age, but um, I suppose I've been fortunate to, I guess, in a sense, just sort of pick things that I like doing and just uh, stick with them. That's sort of how I went through my university studies of being like, oh, I like these subjects, these subjects, I'll just study them and sort of, you know, those can be my majors and sort of the same with walking. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I enjoy my walking. Um, you know, at school I did a few other different sports, but I think, yeah, walking was always the one that I was best at most successful at and ultimately um stuck with so um yeah but i think the important thing is that like deep down i just enjoy doing it i, I also do enjoy running and, and doing running races but um yeah i think the big difference for me particularly as i got uh older made my first uh, team as uh, for the junior uh, race walking world cup and i was 17 and i realized that i could travel and make friends from other countries uh, doing the sport that kind of you know, move from doing it just because I enjoy the sport to pursuing it and being like, well, this is a way for, for me to, to get get those experiences and, um, you know, probably be valuable for me uh, later in life to, to be a little bit more worldly and, and have these friends and, and, and what have you. And when you were sort of making those teams and, and starting to kind of progress, I mean, how was the talent pool sort of in race walking in Australia? Because, I mean, I mentioned sort of all the big names before that have kind of come through. But, I mean, we seem to always be producing very talented race walkers. So I, I, I can imagine that the, the talent pool is always kind of strong, that we seem to be producing people like yourself who are doing so well on the world scene. Uh, well, certainly uh, it's not, not as deep as like the talent pool that uh, running gets just because it's a little bit of a, more of a niche uh, event. But, um, yeah, particularly... Um, through the 90s and 2000s, when we had the uh, walks program at the Australian Institute of Sport, it was um, not so much that there was a huge amount of talent. There might be often like two or three really good walkers max per age group um, each year. But, you know, if you can pick them up and uh, get them into a program where they're training well and they're um, sort of getting, getting all the other little details there so that they, they can train consistently, um, yeah, that's that's where you can then sort of unearthed talents like the Jared Talent and Nathan Deeks and sort of polish them up to become world champions, Olympic champions, uh, in, in Nathan Deeks's case, a world record holder for a time in the 50-kilometre uh, walk as well. Um, and, you know, the same uh, with the women, you know, with uh, Chain Savile. Uh, she still has our national record. I think uh, the way Jemima Montag is coming along, uh, that, that national record might be under threat, but... Um, yeah, and, and even before Jane, I think Kerry Saxby uh, uh, as well. Um, I think she was a world record holder from, from memory. So, uh, yeah, this has kind of been a, a bit of a target event for Australia. And even if we haven't had a gigantic pipeline of talent coming in, just being able to make uh, really good progress with the talent that we've had, I think has been uh, something of Australia's strength. It's been a little bit more of a challenge since the end of the uh, walks program at the Australian Institute of Sport, but we're um, 
I think we're building back up to that. At the moment, we've got a good uh, core of, of walkers in Melbourne that uh, have been training together whenever we're not locked down. So um, I think, and a lot of us actually made that Olympic, uh, this Olympic team uh, for Tokyo. So um, yeah, be good to watch uh, some of those other um, guys and girls um, come through in, in the next few years. In terms of sort of, you know, mentorship, are there are there moments like that where maybe you get to speak to Jared, you get to speak to Nathan, you get to speak to Jane and kind of get some advice or tips? I mean, is that something that they're still kind of involved in? Obviously, Jared was still sort of competing around about that time when you were sort of getting into it. But are you able to kind of lean on them for some advice with the techniques and then moving forward to when you go to an Olympics, get some advice of what it's like competing at, say, an Olympics versus a, another event? Um, yeah, I think the, the big thing has been like less about uh, mentorship per se and, and more about training camp opportunities. Uh, so we've, particularly in the last few years, had uh, opportunities sort of usually about January of each year where we've partnered with uh, Australian Catholic University uh, to do some uh, research studies. And basically that's been a way to fund training camps and then instead of having to call someone up or send them a message to ask some questions, like they're literally there. You can just have a casual chat to them during the day chat to them during a training session, watch what they do, be like, oh, okay, you know, this is what a person who's won four Olympic medals does uh, for their training and just sort of like take that on board and be like, okay, well, what do I need to do to get to that level? Um, what are the sorts of things that they're doing to make sure that they can keep returning up to training each day? And yeah, that, that learning by uh, experience, I think is really valuable and yeah, now that Jared's retired, we were, we were lucky in uh, December this year and uh, January as well to have Jared come along to the training camps that we were doing in that, you know, that really good summertime where there weren't any lockdowns and there weren't any cases. <laughs> good memories. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was great to have Jared along and there. And, and now that he's retired, I'm sort of mindful that I'm kind of like the, the old <laughs> old man of, of, of walking in Australia at the moment. So I'm trying as well to... to be that sort of person for some of those younger athletes that are coming through, like um, you know, Beck Henderson's 20, Katie Haywood's 21, uh, Declan uh, Tingay and Kyle Swan, they're 22. So they've all uh, yeah, hopefully got long careers ahead of them. And, um, you know, if I can help make that a little bit more successful, a little bit easier for them, then um, I'm going to be really happy to, to be, uh, play that part. What was that period like? from making your first team right through to when you eventually qualify for Rio. You, you went to the World Championships. You were on the, the World Cup scene for quite some time, uh, the University Games, everything along those lines. I mean, was it a, a case of just building up that experience, competing on that that world stage that would sort of lead you to an Olympics? And kind of similar to what I asked before, was, was it that maybe a point then when something clicked and you thought, well, an Olympics really is an, a possibility here. This is something that I can really achieve through my race walking. Um, yeah, I, I suppose, um, not, not necessarily so much the competitions themselves that, uh, give you that experience that just magically improves you, you know, you've got to go and t get a takeaway from that championship and be like, okay, well, um, this worked, this didn't work. What, what do I need to do to get to the next level? And then you go back home and you try and train really hard. And I think for me, particularly earlier in my uh, career, sort of when I was early twenties, the challenge for me was training consistently at my home environment. Um, it's not that I had necessarily huge obstacles uh, to that in terms of what I was doing. I was living at home, studying at university, but um, sometimes, yeah, just figuring out how your body works and how you can get it to be its most consistent self is its own challenge. And then 
as well, just getting the uh, training age of just getting your body used to a certain volume and then like stepping up that volume a little bit, a little bit and just building year on year. That's um, I think been the big thing for me. And yeah, particularly I think in the recent years, I've just really got my training environment sorted out and got my sort of fueling recovery, uh, all that stuff that um, supports being able to train well and you know, get those gains uh, sorted out. And I think that's where um, my performances have started to, take off a little bit they were sort of tapering a little bit or plateauing um sort of in my mid-20s but they've been able to take off again a little bit and um yeah it's it's then been another challenge to uh, be able to turn up to a, a championship and, and actually have my best performance at the championship rather than I don't know leaving it on the training track or doing it in a qualifying race um and that's been another bit of a learning journey which you know, I've, I've just tried to even if I've had bad championships or okay championships just keep learning and get, keep getting takeaways from those events. And yeah, I think it's probably paid off a little bit in my result in the Tokyo games, but at the same time, you know, finishing eighth, you're like, Oh, I'm not too far away from a medal now. And it's like, okay, well, what do I have to do to get there? So um, yeah, we'll see how that progresses when I get back uh, home and, and start training in for the next year's championships. Is it similar, particularly with the 50 K to say marathon runners where, you're not going out every single weekend and doing a 50 K you're obviously, you know, getting that body into a place where you may be only doing a certain amount of those races in a year. I mean, is it, is it that way when you're doing the 50 K and when you're doing the 20 K is a little bit different. Can you kind of get your body into line to do more of those in a year than you would say the 50 K? Yeah, definitely. I think for the 50 K it's similar to the marathon. If you're trying to race them seriously fast, you're probably not going to be doing more than two or three a year. Um, But then with the 20 K you can, probably tackle again a few more uh like and expect to get a really fast time you might be able to get six or seven in a year doing that but if you're racing that many times unless you have like a real big racing block where you're hitting two or three races back to back to back um you know you run the risk if you're racing too much you're not actually doing the training blocks that you need to to be racing at your best um and, and even if you're doing six or seven races, which you're wanting to do really fast each year, there's going to be some that are more important than the others. Like there's one or, or maybe two championship races per year. Um, and so, yeah, if you're racing for championships, those are really always going to be the number one aim compared to any other race that you're doing, even if you're racing uh, some other 20Ks throughout the year. In terms of deciding between the the lengths you obviously did the 20k in rio the 50k in tokyo some people obviously you mentioned sort of robert back in sydney did the double uh obviously it was a little bit more difficult in tokyo because they were both sort of the day after each other so i can imagine that was something that wasn't possible but what what is kind of the the choosing factor when it comes to deciding between a 20 and 50 is it sort of a coaching thing maybe a coach says to you hey like you're good at the 20 but have you tried the 50 is it up to you kind of how do you decide between the two um, well, I suppose some, particularly like for a coach or sports uh, scientist or whatnot, they'd probably look at physiological markers to, to work out what your best event is. So people that have got a really, really good uh, exercise economy at um, the marathon or 50K race pace, you know, that would be people that you'd identify as a 50K uh, walker. But uh, Australia's development historically for 50K walkers has been that their best 20K walkers are also their best. 50k walkers you just have to put the right training into them and so it's been a bit of a process for me over the past few years to just introduce the 
right sort of training sessions over a consistent uh, period of time to be able to do a 50k and then also to be able to do a 50k uh, well but um yeah i was i actually did qualify in in both the 20k and the 50k for tokyo um when i did qualify at the start of 2019 uh they were both it was like both events were scheduled in tokyo in front of the imperial palace and wow. there was about a week's break between the two of them which would have been perfect for doing the double and um yeah unfortunately with the, the decision to sort of in the interests of uh, the spectators and the athletes uh, health and safety to move it up to Sapporo meant that for logistics purposes they had to just put everything uh, day after day and uh, you, yeah the double wasn't uh, something that was considered um yeah in in Beijing Jared Talent doubled he did the 20k and finished uh, third and the 50k and finished second so um and, and like I said about Robert Korzenowski in in uh uh, Sydney winning the uh, double in the 20 and the 50k at some, um, yeah, the best 20k walkers are also likely to be good 50k walkers if they've, they've done the training for it. Because, um, you know, if you can walk 80 minutes or 78 minutes or whatever for a 20 kilometer walk, there's not a lot that people can do in the first uh, two and a half hours of a 50 that can uh, hurt you much. It just, just comes down to what, what happens in the last hour or so. It's It's insane to think that you can sort of meddle and in both because I mean it's to me that's likening that if you know you win the marathon you you go and win the the, the ten thousand meters I mean it's kind of it, there's a discrepancy there in it which is which is incredible and the thing is too with the fifty k yeah the marathon's great forty two k good for them you're doing fifty you're doing more than they are eight k's more so I mean it's just the, the the amazing talent it is from someone like you know Robert and Jared to kind of go out there and, and double medal in the event. I mean that's that's an insane feat. It's a testament to how fit they are, but but also because we're walking a bit slower than marathoners are running. You know we're out there for at least three and a half hours, and some people close to or over four hours. So um, it's it's a bit a lot more time on your feet than the, the marathoners. But uh, I'm mentioning the 10k marathon double. I mean, it's pretty famous, particularly in Melbourne, with the the yearly event that Emil Zadipek won that, and also won the five thousand meters at the Olympics. Uh, yeah, back. Uh, gosh, I can't remember which Olympics it was, but two thousand eight was it? Uh, Zadip- yeah. Zadipek? No, that was like nineteen fifties, I think. Oh right, sorry, I'm thinking of different. Yeah, okay, yep. Galen Ruff, I think, did the ten thousand and marathon double in uh, Rio. So um, yeah, again, like it. It is possible, and I think probably for me a closer analogue would be half marathon, marathon double. Uh, and, and I think if there was an Olympic half marathon, you'd, you might see the likes of Kipchoge running that as as well. Um, but then you'd also probably see a bunch of 10K runners stepping up and doing the half marathon, which would be quite interesting, I think. Because it's always just it's fa- it's fascinating sort of in athletics, kind of just the the spread between the disciplines and all that sort of stuff. I mean, everyone remembers sort of Michael Johnson doing the 200-400 double, which was sort of unheard of. You know, it's all well and good to have the 100-200, but it's sort of it's different, isn't it, from going from that side to the other. So, yeah, and we obviously saw that with uh, Safana-san in Tokyo too, kind of spread across all the different disciplines there that she was able to compete in. So it, it, it's sort of fascinating and it's mind-boggling as a non-athlete to kind of think about the the aspects that you've got to put into your body uh to kind of kind of do that yeah i think the craziest um double for me in in tokyo was the uh, american who did the long jump high jump double yeah yeah like, exactly you don't obviously see that they're, often obviously, anymore, obviously, like... they're, obviously they're both jumping but um, yeah 
you know, it's really uncommon to see field events uh, double. Or you might see like a long jumper become a, a sprinter or be in a relay, uh, like a four-by-one Carl Lewis relay. used to do it back in the day. Marion Jones, I remember back in Sydney, yeah. Um, yeah. Jesse Owens back in the day as well. But, I mean, yeah, it's kind of that cross. I mean, one of sort of on a slight tangent but on, on the same page, I mean, one of my biggest stories of recent years was Esther Ledecker in the Winter Olympics winning a gold in snowboarding and skiing, like, you know, the, sort of the first athlete to do something like that. It's it's great to see these cross-platforms. I mean, you know, we, we think of uh, our great Edwin Flack back in, you know, our first ever Olympic gold medalist who got gold in, what was it, athletics and tennis, uh, a bronze in tennis. Like, I mean, you're never going to see Ash Barty going off and uh, getting a bronze in tennis and then backing up with a 100-metre sprint. I know disrespect to Ash. I'm sure she's a great runner, but uh, it's just something you just don't see anymore. Oh, maybe, maybe we'll have to speak to the athletics coach to see what sort of talent ID we can do. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Rowan Browning might be a, a fantastic sport climber or something like that. We don't know, you know. kind yeah, of. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe with her, like, um, hitting power, maybe yeah, doing something like a discus would be good for Ash. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> or or maybe, she, maybe she's an all-rounder. Maybe she could do the decaf. She could, or the, yeah, exactly. Heptathlon. Yeah, heptathlon, yeah. <laughs> just everything. Just kind of have the – I mean, she what, she did well in the Big Bash when she went to cricket and then came back and becomes, you know, a Wimbledon champion. I mean, she can do anything, so I yeah, wouldn't put yeah, it past then, that. Then, you know, then there's like Elise Perry. Um, well, I think she's stuck with the cricket a bit more now, but uh, when she yeah. was a bit younger, like being on the Matildas as well as the women's cricket team, like – yep. Georgie Parker went from hockey to, to AFL. I mean, you got all these yeah. sort of cross-platform no, no, coaches. Nova, Nova Paris as well. Oh, exactly. Uh, hockey, hockey to, to running. Um, yeah. yeah, running. Wow. We're, we're, we're listing all these. I mean, sort of, I, I think of Yana Pittman going from uh, sprinting to bobsleigh, kind of a bit more closely connected there. But, I mean, still, yeah. you know. Well, that, that reminds me of um, the, uh, the Tongan flag bearer. I think he yes. um, also is Pia. an Olympian. So, yeah. Yeah. I can't, did, I can't, um, can't forget uh, a, a, an oiled up Tongan. Man, that's... Well, he... The, the fun story about fantastic. him was that, like, he actually tried to qualify for, I think it was canoe sprint for Tokyo. So he was trying to do three different sports and he narrowly missed out. So, he kind of had to go back to the, the you know, the backup plan of taekwondo again. But um, <laughs> if he had have qualified for canoe sprint, I mean, three different... I don't know if that's ever been done before. Kind of three different Olympic sports over three different Olympics. So, um yeah, it's it's an enigma. I mean, God, I, I would be happy to qualify for one in any sport. You name a sport, I'll try. Um, <laughs> you know, I've always said about curling, but recently I've discovered curling's a lot more harder than it is than you think it is. So, um, you know, when, yeah, when I they... Like, I think I'd be slipping over a lot if I was doing yeah. curling. Probably just <laughs> following the stone podcasting. Podcasting Brisbane 2032, let, let's bring it in there. Do you, do you remember that moment when you were officially qualified for Rio and kind of what that was like to kind of get the official announcement that you are an Olympian from that point on? Uh, yeah, so um, for, for Rio, I'd um, got a qualifying time uh, pretty early, uh, relatively early in the year, but um, not winning the national championship means that I wasn't uh, automatically selected in the team, so I kind of just had to sit and wait around a bit. Um, and so in that sense, just um, getting the call and getting the announcement and just knowing I could tell people that I am going to the Olympics instead of, I'm going to be selected. Uh, was <laughs> it's just nice because it's a, it's a little bit complicated to explain to people um, like the nuances of when you're going to get named. So um, certainly it's a lot easier uh, once you have been named, and it's easier again once you've been and you're like, yes, so I, I am an Olympian. I went to the Olympics. Uh, I found that in 2016, I was in a race in Japan where I was after the race, I'd gone back to Kyoto and I was in a uh, hostel there and. Um, they it just turned out that the hostel people just really loved running. They had a wall of different race bibs, and I was like, "Oh, I've got a race bib. You can 
have this race bib and then um, they're asking about the Olympics and it's really hard to explain across the language barrier about like, whether I'm going or not. Fantastic. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, it was great. It was actually um, before Tokyo, um, uh, the person that I'd uh, sort of, I'd swapped some, uh, an Australian singlet with him uh, um, made a, a bit of a post about me in, in Japanese on his uh, Instagram. It was kind of nice to know that he remembered me. And, wow. Um, yeah, it's great, great to feel supported, um, even though, yeah, no one could be on the sidelines. It was, um, yeah, definitely, I think for a lot of us in our heads, just knowing how many people were cheering for us back home was, and, and for me as well, like in, even in other countries, was just, yeah, really powerful. Fantastic. Good to hear those sort of little moments there. We, we spoke to Elise and Jordan Wood recently, sort of they had competed in Rio and then and Tokyo and kind of the differences i mean sort of that whole debut olympic experience i can imagine can be everything from overwhelming to exciting and everything else in between your first olympics but kind of looking back on rio versus tokyo in terms of experiencing i guess a quote a normal games with crowds and and everything along those lines versus the uniqueness of tokyo are you kind of glad that you got to sort of experience what you did in in rio versus what you did in tokyo or kind of can you sort of take away just similar experiences from the both despite say the lack of crowds and everything that you had at Tokyo. Yeah. Well, um, I think there was people were telling me that had been to London and previous games to that, that uh, Rio was you know, very different to them and uh, maybe even in their opinion, not as good, but you know, I didn't have any reference point, so it didn't, didn't really bother me. And then, uh, you know, it's different, different again. I think all the Olympics you're in a little bit of a bubble anyway. So uh, in terms of interacting with, people it's it's usually pretty limited unless they're uh, fellow olympians so um you know that bit wasn't too different but then you know not being able to interact with people on the street was uh you know not being able to walk around outside the hotel uh was a little bit yeah a little bit of a challenge a little bit different but uh, we'll say the toilets in japan were definitely an upgrade from the toilets in uh rio because in the village the plumbing was pretty dodgy and i think Lots of people had like flooded and backed up toilets by the end of the games. Whereas in wow. Japan, we had the you know fancy futuristic um, toilets that talk to you and have a bidet and a seat warmer and God knows what else. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all the important stuff you need as an athlete, right? <laughs> yeah, you know that, that, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Which also, too, I mean, I saw sort of some of the posts on social media. I believe you did it as well, like. What was that like watching the opening ceremony from home, knowing that all of a sudden you're going to be there in a week? Because obviously I can imagine in Rio, whether you attended it or not, you sort of probably swept up a little bit more in the Olympic fever. I can imagine that would have been a very unique experience. Uh, well, the athletics team often doesn't uh, march in opening ceremonies, uh, for particularly for Olympics, just because, um, yeah, I think sometimes just even just managing bed numbers, uh, they Sort of swimmers will compete first and then swimmers will move out and athletics will move in just so that the village isn't like completely bursting at the seams or like over capacity. Um, so in before Rio, we were actually in Florida for the opening ceremony, but we were able wow. to have our own little uh, ceremony in uh, the place we were having our staging camp and do our own little march around uh, the track there. <laughs> so you know, that was a bit novel and again we just uh those of us that were in the Cairns staging camp were able to have a little bit of an opening ceremony um sort of event in our camp and I think we also um zoomed in with some of the uh team members that were stuck in Sydney as well just to help them feel included so uh, it was kind of like having our own little opening ceremony event uh 
having said that, I was at the opening ceremony at the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, and that was a really amazing experience. But um, yeah, in terms of missing opening ceremonies at Olympics, um, I haven't actually been to one, so I don't know what I'm missing out on. Can, can I can I ask just on the Gold Coast topic? Did you go to the closing ceremony, Ridian? And if so, have you you've recovered from it? Because I was there, and that was a that was a that was an odd one. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Um, I think a lot of us were standing around there being a bit confused, but then, you know, as, as athletes, you're pretty pumped up about, uh, you know, your events finished. And I think also sometimes uh, there are shows that are, you know, there to be viewed on TV or from the stands. So uh, as an athlete, you, I don't know, I suppose standing around being confused is not necessarily uh, out of the ordinary. <laughs> Seeing the same Bolt DJ with Borroby was pretty confusing as well. So uh, and I don't know if that's something that we'll ever get from our, ma- our memories. Oh, Bor- Borroby was a really good mascot. I think they oh, really Borroby was brilliant. Thing. Yeah. Yes, Borroby. I wish I actually I've got a Borroby somewhere. I wish I had it. I need to put it on display behind me actually. But um, yeah, oh, I've got was... a Borroby at home. But I've I've got um, a couple of the Olympic mascots here with me. Um, Great. Fortunately, I can't show people that are listening. But yeah, I can I can <laughs> I can firmly establish that there is uh, an Olympic mascot there clearly uh on the screen which i i'm actually it's kind of we we did an episode recently after brisbane got the games and we were trying to think about like what will the mascot and we all remember sid uh ollie and millie from sydney uh i I, i'm just trying to think what they can have for brisbane uh Uh, bring back they might might bring back matilda from the brisbane (laughs) Commonwealth games as well um we didn't have a kangaroo did oh did we no because sid was was a platypus in in the the brisbane commonwealth games it was that famous as kangaroo yeah but i'm thinking sort of for the olympics because it was it was a frilled neck lizard for the paralympics yeah echidna um kookaburra and a platypus yeah yeah, I'd say a Tassie Devil as a Tasmanian, but save that for when Tasmania yeah. gets the Olympics. And the, the <laughs> Melbourne Commonwealth Games as well. That was a um, red-tailed black cockatoo. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, which are beautiful birds. Yeah, we've got so many great animals though in this country. So I mean, you know, the the choices yeah. are endless. I like, my, choice. My my personal favourite Olympic mascot is uh, Izzy from Atlanta, which still to this day nobody knows what it is and nobody knows what it was. But I don't care. Izzy was amazing. People talk about Wenlock at London kind of being a bit odd, but no, like I'm all for Izzy. Bring back sort of a weird concoction of whatever the hell Izzy was, and yeah. I'm down with that for Brisbane. Oh, the, the, the Rio mascot as well was, uh, oh, yeah, this the, was like literally um, like an amalgamation of about seven different animals, which yep. was interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, you know, I mean, it works. It kind of, you know, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't have like, you know, Pele as their mascot because they love him so much, right? Like, I mean... We, we could we could have Emma McKeon now as our mascot now that she's so good out there winning so many medals. Uh, you know, kind of who knows with that sort of stuff. I mean, outside of, um, you know, I'll get to sort of the, the event, you know, the 20K, how you did it in Rio, but just in terms of just atmosphere, soaking it up, um, everything else along those lines. I mean, are you so focused on your event that you kind of can't soak in the Olympic aspect of things and maybe you did so more so in Tokyo or were you fully invested in kind of, you know, here you are in a village, here you are kind of experiencing everything about an Olympic Games that an athlete can outside of competing? Uh, well, I think it, uh, that sort of it would vary from athlete to athlete. But for me, I know in, in Rio, I was kind of like, I don't know, not, not really feeling super uh, excited or nervous necessarily. I was like kind of reminding myself on the start line to be like, hey, really, and this is an Olympic, you know, this is something you might not get to experience again. You know, you should be enjoying the moments. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the sort of it was similar in, in Tokyo. It was just kind of like focusing, okay, it's just a race that I'm getting ready for. And uh, I was a little bit, getting a little bit nervous for it in the last uh, day or so before 
uh, the the uh, the race started. Um, so uh, and even that morning as well. Uh, so when when we got to the course and it was still a bunch of time to wait before we even needed to start to get ready. So um, my coach Brent and and I just laid down on the grass watching the sunrise over the Sapporo TV tower just to wow. calm me down, settle me down a little bit because. You know, you're out there for nearly four hours walking 50Ks. You don't want to waste any energy on uh, not walking. So um, just got to try and stay calm and, and relaxed. 33rd in in Rio. Did you kind of set yourself uh, any sort of goals in terms of where you wanted to finish, times, and kind of how how did you feel after your Rio performance? Uh, yeah, I was pretty happy with how I went in Rio just because it was more or less on form with how I'd been walking throughout the rest of the year. Um and so just to be able to replicate what I'd done to get to the Olympics. And it was in, in warm weather, you know, so that was quite good and I was, I was happy with that. Um, you know, someone has to finish 33rd, you know, if there's <laughs> 50 people finishing, someone has to finish 49th, 50th, etc. So, um, yeah, I think it can be easy sometimes to just focus on the medal winners or the top eights, but um, there's usually people who are happy or have had good performances right down the field. I know in the uh, women's marathon, uh, this year, I've got a friend who uh, runs or has run with my athletics club back before COVID, and she's from the Solomon Islands. And great to support her. That was her second Olympics. She was setting up the marathon this year, and uh, she actually ran a national record uh, wow. in the women's marathon. So it was uh, really, really exciting to, to see that. So I think in between all the marathons and all the walks, there were only three people that did a personal best. Uh, one of them was myself, one of them was Declan Tingay in the 20k walk, and the other one was uh, Sharon uh, Firasia of the Solomon Islands who ran a national record. So, Beautiful. Uh, yeah, small club that we were a part of. Fantastic. So it's good to hear because that's the one thing that we talked a lot about during the games is, I mean, particularly sort of with the way Channel 7 were portraying the athletics team, it's kind of, it's always that sort of second week that, you know, after the swimmers are done, it's kind of like, okay, where are we going to go in the, the next week? And it, it's just, it's the opposite, I guess, mentality on, on I feel, how we perceive the, the athletics team versus swimming team because if the swimming team don't come away with like five gold medals, they've failed. Whereas like the athletics team, it's like, Everything is being talked up. Like Rowan Brown, he makes it talked up. Personal best, talked up. You know, Matt Denny finishing fourth. It's it's talked up. And that's, to me, how the Olympics should be. Yeah, medals are great. But at the end of the day, if you're putting out a personal best, if you're finishing 33rd and you're satisfied with it and, you know, it's a, it's a season best, personal best, that that's the achievement in itself. And that's what I really did like about the Tokyo Games this year is how you know, Bruce and Tamsin and Dave Colbert were just really talking up all of the athletes' performances no matter where they finished. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, athletics is basically like the event where the most different countries compete in, or the sport rather, where the most different countries compete in. And so in that sense, it's just a lot harder. Like swimming is obviously hard to win a medal, but it just, I think the perception uh, is, and I'm not sure how the data, how you'd even get data to, to sort of research that and to back it up, is that athletics is just so much harder to, to win a medal. And so I think, you know, you pair back those expectations a little bit and and it also just gives you a chance to um look into the stories uh behind athletes so you know peter bowl was just yeah. a fantastic story um and those of us who've been running with him in teams for the last five or more years you know we already know peter and how great a guy he is but it's just um amazing for the rest of australia to discover that 
Yeah, for um, sure. And the, and the camaraderie too just seems so strong in the athletics team as well. I mean, you know, some of the scenes we had of you guys sort of sticking around, obviously with no crowds and kind of cheering on everyone along those lines. I mean, it just seems like such a great atmosphere that everyone from the race walkers to the discus throwers to the sprinters to the hammer throwers can all kind of come together and I guess have this great team environment. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of work uh, in Athletics Australia and, and particularly amongst the athletes to sort of make make a, a team that's really supportive of each other and just like a really uh, safe and welcoming uh, environment for people. So um, we had uh, Ange Blackburn uh, is an Indigenous uh, woman and um, we had a welcome to country in the staging camp in uh, Cairns and um, I think that was the first time that we've had something like that in the staging camp and she was just saying afterwards about how it just made her feel so much more uh, welcomed and and safe in that environment. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, those, those sorts of steps that we've been uh, trying to take and, you know, there's more steps to go on, on that journey. I think it's just uh, means that the teams uh, just perform so much better because everyone's just feeling good. Um, we're able to look after each other. Everyone's a bit less stressed out and, and just able to focus on uh, getting their best performance. In terms of you mentioned before about how you had qualified for both 20 and 50K and obviously ultimately had to make a decision between the two when they sort of moved them around, what was the decision to focus on the 50K besides the uh, the, the 20K? Well, I think there's a few factors going into it. So we sort of looking at the 20K and the 50K, there's a lot of really fast guys at the moment in the 20K uh, men's event and it's it's really really challenging to get a good performance or high, high finishing performance there. Whereas looking at the 50k, we were sort of assessing that as a little bit weaker, um, a little bit easier to get a, a top level performance there. Um, so just strictly from a performance perspective, that's like okay, maybe the 50 is a good idea. And then looking at my own physiology, um, I've got a really really good uh, exercise economy at the 50k race speed, and um, so. I coach with his experience. Um, you know, Brent uh, Valance, he, he coached Jared to uh, a bunch of his Olympic medals. He, he coached um, Dixie. He's uh, yeah, coached a lot of really good athletes. So I, I trust his opinion on that. It's like, well, 50K is probably my most suitable event if I have to pick between one or the other. Um, and so that was like an, another thing in, in the 50K um, thing. And then also because, um, you know, Dane Bird-Smith had qualified in the, the 20Ks, but then we also had Kyle Swan and Declan Tingay knocking on the door. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, Dane had to withdraw just because of um, that uh, family uh, illness thing. Um, it, it, I suppose it meant that in practice it may not have necessarily been a, an issue. But, um, yeah, you know, it just meant that if I stepped up to the 50K, there was room for more walkers and uh, the more the merrier, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it worked out for you. Uh, top 10, you finished eighth, a personal best. Uh, I mean, you must have left with a pretty big smile on your face to kind of uh, walk away with that achievement. Yeah. Oh, I suppose I didn't really walk away because I hopped straight into a wheelchair afterwards. <laughs> Bad choice of words, Ben. <laughs> I was, I was, don't want to walk for a while after a 50k race walk, yeah, right? I was, yes. I was, I was, I was a bit sick of walking up after that. <laughs> Push me around, everyone, right now. I'm yeah, tired. I I, I, a few people talked to me about my interview after the race when I was sitting in the wheelchair. It's like, well, at least people have got something memorable. <laughs> yeah. Well, all race walkers give great interviews. Jane Savile wanted to shoot herself up to Sydney. Uh, Dane kind of had everyone jumping and getting arrested in Rio after winning a bronze and there you are collapsing in a wheelchair i mean there's something great about race walkers post interviews uh yeah it's just that personality you know but um <laughs> yeah i was absolutely uh over the moon especially um this olympic cycle you know not like 
before Rio where I'd been studying at university, I've been working full-time almost the entire Olympic cycle. Um, last few months sort of leading into Tokyo, it was just sort of winding down to, to part-time a, a bit. But um, yeah, I think probably in my uh, field, I was the highest finishing person who's not a full-time athlete. So um, I was able to take that away from myself. And in, in terms of setting myself a personal challenge and something that I can tell as a story to anyone that wants to listen or is a captive audience and has no other choice in the future, um, is like, well, you know, I, I pushed myself. I did the longest event on the athletics um, uh, calendar and I did it whilst I was uh, working full-time. Um, you know, not everyone can say that. And, yeah, you know, it's working full-time in an office isn't the same as, you know, labouring uh, as a, a brickie or whatever outside every day. But um, you know, it's still challenging. It tires you out and you've, you've got to travel and get ready and sometimes it, uh you know, you don't have as much time to train as you might like. But, um, yeah, I think um, there's definitely a few of those other stories amongst the team. I'm not the only person that's uh, managed to compete and go well at the Olympics uh, whilst working. And, yeah, on top of that as well, just uh, everyone had to navigate the, the pandemic in their own different way and everyone's got that story to tell about how they um, navigated those challenges. So um, I think for a lot of us just getting there and getting to the end of that journey and, and being able to say, okay, well, this is my story now about how I went to an Olympics during a pandemic is, yeah, been, it's, it's something that it, uh, it'll, it'll make a lot of us in terms of what our story is uh, going forward to our friends and family and, and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I think we can all be pretty proud of the way that we acquitted ourselves. Which is, it's always going to be that unique aspect of, of the Tokyo Olympics that any athlete who competed there can talk about being it maybe the weirdest Olympics ever, essentially. Um, you know, the only Olympics held in an odd year so far. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and still called 2020. Like, it's kind of, you know, they didn't even cave for that sort of thing. But, I mean, on that, was was the extra year a, a hindrance or a benefit for you in, in terms of kind of how you went? So, for me, I think definitely a, a benefit. Um, you know, the pandemic's been really really crappy for a lot of people um but for me uh, i've been really privileged that it's kind of worked out well for me uh, working from home most of last year meant that i just had a whole lot more time in my day to train and even when i was in melbourne i could only go out for an hour of exercise a day because i have a treadmill in my garage and train as, as much as i wanted on that and you know, being in a, a, an event uh, that i can just do that was really fortunate I was really fortunate I still had work my fiance still had work and having an extra year to just get the training volume in for the 50 I think probably the difference between top eight this year and probably something a little bit further back in the field last year so um you know all, all in all yeah I've been really privileged that the pandemic's probably worked out as a net benefit for me and it's I think probably not too many uh, people are in that boat so I've been have been conscious of that and I've just been trying to think about uh, things that I can do in my community and, and within the sport as well, just to try and um, share that privilege and, and make it a little bit easier for people that maybe aren't having as, as easy a time of it. Now, I've learned this is probably a bad question to ask uh, Olympians who have just come back from the Olympics, uh, Ridian, but uh, kind of moving forward, is Paris a, a goal right now? Is it too early to kind of ask that question? Kind of what are your thoughts in the next three years towards the next Olympics? Well, the good thing about this uh, last Olympic cycle being five years is the next one's only three years long. So um, <laughs> they're just going to make it a little bit easier. Sometimes um, 
you know, those commitments, uh, the more years you're adding on to the commitment, the harder it is to, to make it sort of uh, any you know, length of time out. But uh, I'm hoping, you know, if weddings aren't banned this year, because uh, they were last year and we had to postpone to get uh, married at the end of this year. And um, yeah, so maybe priorities might change at home but in, in terms bit. of yeah maybe maybe not <laughs> maybe mostly. i mean i don't know like it kind of does change a few things you never know but uh, <laughs> uh yeah uh you know between that and then you know see how my body's going see how my motivation's going um i think i'd like to to go and have a crack at paris and um the 50k event unfortunately won't be there but um yeah i think i'd like to have a crack at it and at the very least like say that i gave it a shot but at the same time uh, you know, there's, have, you know, has my body going to hold up? Um, there's a bunch of great young walkers as well in uh, Australia that I might have to be fighting for a spot. Uh, so it's not necessarily going to be as straightforward as deciding to go for the Olympics uh, or deciding to be there. But um, yeah, I think for me, particularly at the moment, I'm just happy to take it one year at a time. It's going to be a pretty crowded car- uh, calendar by the looks of it next year with uh, the Birmingham Commonwealth Games and the uh, Oregon World Championships. So uh, and they're pretty close to each other as well, aren't they? Like they're very close. Yeah, there's, just, there's just enough gap that um, in theory uh, a walker could do the 20k, 35k, and then Commonwealth Games uh, triple. But um, you'd want to be pretty fit to be able to do all of those and expect to be uh, walking at your best. But the, 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 the good news is after that. I think 2023 should hopefully be a little bit of a quieter year. Um, right. With, oh, I suppose there would be still a world championship in 2023 just because everything's been thrown out of whack Not with their brilliant. calendars. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it'd be nice, hopefully, to have a little bit of a quieter year and then, like, push back up the hill for uh, Paris. Is there, I guess, as an athlete in a Commonwealth nation, I mean, does a Commonwealth Games take precedence over a world championship or other way around? I mean, kind of how do you, I guess, rank either how you'll go or, I guess, the prestige? I mean, how do you kind of weigh up if you had to choose between a Commonwealth Games and a World Championship? Because usually they're not in the same year, of course. Yeah. Well, I think um, generally speaking, like from a high-performance perspective in uh, athletics at least, I'm, I'm aware that they consider a World Championship higher than a Commonwealth Games. But I think as an athlete in the Commonwealth Games, you know, you get chances to uh, – win medals or compete where you might not otherwise get that opportunity just because uh, you're not facing the entire rest of the world. Um, you know, that, that can be a reason, I think, why some athletes would prioritise the Commonwealth Games, and I completely understand that. But, um, yeah, I suppose in preparing for one, I'd be preparing for the other next uh, next year. So um, I, don't, I don't fortunately have to worry too much about prior- prioritisation, but also... The walk event will be 10 kilometres in uh, Birmingham. So it's going to be a little bit of a step down from the 35 kilometres if I do that. And yeah. um, it'll just be interesting to see if I can, well, firstly, make the team and secondly, just testing uh, my range. Like, That's a can sprint I step, can I step for you down? guys, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. It's just yeah well, I, had, I had some really good 10 kilometre performances earlier this year. Um, myself and Declan Tingay uh, had a couple of really good races where we uh, – walked uh quite quickly and i think we're ranked uh third and fourth in the commonwealth this year on 10k uh, times so that's behind callum wilkinson from uh, uh england and uh, evan dunphy from canada and uh, yeah it's really good to see uh, i know you mentioned him before it's really good to see evan win his uh, bronze medal 
Well, we, we, I was going to bring up Evan quickly because you obviously mentioned about how Paris is no longer having the 50K and Evan's been very outspoken on the fact that that's been dropped in, in favour of the mixed relay. I mean, what's your kind of take on them dropping? Because it, ultimately it all comes down to they've only got a certain amount of medals they can give out, so I guess they're you know scrapping one to bring in another event. But, I mean, it, it baffles me that something like the 50K, which to me is one of the, you know, the top events in the athletics program, has kind of been scrapped. Uh, yeah, so I think it kind of... Um started a little bit there was a push to open up the 50 kilometers so that women could compete in the 50 kilometers for you know gender equity purposes um and obviously when that's a new event and it's stepping up like that it takes a few years for the uh, field to sort of uh, mature but um yeah i think there's there've been some sort of on- ongoing uh, issues with you know walks don't attract a huge crowd and unlike running they're not really a big uh, money spinner so um it often costs more to hold a big walking event if it's a standalone event compared to um, running events. But, uh, yeah, I think as well, um, I'm not entirely sure what's motivated the decision to include a 35 because you've just wiped out a bunch of history from the uh, 50-kilometre event and you've got a distance that is just seemingly drawn out of a hat. It's um, a bit of an in-between distance. It's not a marathon distance, so... um, People have got no reference point to a marathon uh, with it. And um, it's good to have it like, um, you know, gen- like the same number of events, male and female events. So it's, it's good that that's finally happening. Um, and the mixed relay or teams or whatever event it is that they're trying to come up with, I just feel like it's a little bit confusing. It doesn't really do anything to make the walk any more interesting to people that don't watch the walk or don't enjoy the walk. So it's... A, feels like shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not really uh, doing anything that makes the walk more interesting to people. And if anything, it just annoys the people that already like the walk and are yeah. passionate about the existing history. Well, it's, so, it's um, fair because I thought it would be, and no disrespect to the 20, but I thought if you're going to scrap either, you'd scrap the 20 because that's got a, a lesser history than the 50, kind of as you're mentioning with the history behind the 50. So it's kind of, and I guess, does that keep it on parity though with the fact that you've got a 20k in the women so you've got a 20k in the men and women and then you've just got the mixed relay rather than confusing and saying we've got a 50 for the men a 20 for the women and then a mix in the middle i i don't know i, I think some of the issues with the 20k in shorter events is that people are walking that fast that um it starts to become really hard to judge and then sometimes you know lay person that doesn't uh know a lot about walking might be like hey they're, they're not actually walking they're breaking the rules um whereas in the 50k you know you're slowing down a lot more so uh, that's less of an, an issue but uh and one of the things they were looking at for that was uh, investigating uh, shoe chip ne- technology that did the job of uh, judges but that's not really been able to to take off and that again is just another really really big expense um yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think something that might have made a bit more sense and I think could be more easily sold to the general public would be turning it into a half marathon and marathon distance uh, walks. Um, again, that would kind of get rid of the, the any history of the 20-kilometre event, but at least then it's like, okay, what's standardised to what people are running and it gives people that, that do half marathons and marathons uh, the big city events uh, a bit of a reference point about how quickly people are actually walking 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point of doing that. Maybe that's something yeah they can sort of adapt in the future. Now, Ridian, we're going to get to some fun questions to close this out, but two things I've got to touch on quickly, including the one that I'm very excited about. But the first one I want to ask you about, uh, Sports Environment Alliance. Now, uh, you're very passionate sort of about the environment. Uh, label yourself as an eco-athlete, which I'm I'm very intrigued to hear a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about sort of what you're, you're doing and hoping to achieve kind of uh, by working with the Sports Environment Alliance. Uh, yeah, so the eco-athletes is actually another group that I work with. Um, I, I suppose that does make me an eco-athlete, but um, it, it is actually a group called Eco-Athletes as well. Um, Sports Environment is more Sports Environment Alliance is more Australia New Zealand uh, athletes sort of based, and Eco-Athletes is um, organised by um, a guy Lou Blaustein who, who lives in New York, and it's a fair bit more uh, international. So there's people from North America, Europe, uh, Oceania, uh, all involved in, in that. And it's basically a recognition that, um, you know, sports contributes to, to global warming, climate change, you know, the, through the carbon emissions used to hold events and travel to events. And, um, you know, we have a responsibility to, to do something about that. And then also um, sports connects with people in, in a way that you know, politicians uh, often struggle to and, sometimes scientists uh, as well struggle to in terms of getting to particular audiences. And um, yeah, just for me, trying to find other people who are like-minded, who are athletes um, that want to do something about it and just talk to their communities about you know, what the issues are and, and also um, what we can do about it, uh, I think is particularly important just to empower people to help them feel a little bit less despondent about things um, is, is uh, yeah, even if I only make a, a small impact myself, if if we all work together to to do that, like that's it's going to be necessary to um, achieve uh, uh, emissions reductions at the speed that we need to do. So, uh, kind of, we need all hands on deck. Uh, in that and is respect. there a place where people can sort of check this out? Like, is there sort of a website or places they can follow to kind of see what you're doing and maybe also get involved themselves? Uh, yeah, so um, the Sports Environment Alliance has a website, and uh, they've got social media as well um so you can just type into your uh, web browser um sports environment alliance or search that up on you know instagram or twitter or facebook or what have you and the same with uh, eco athletes and you can sort of follow things that they're going on and might take you if, if you're interested to go in a bit of a, a wormhole about um, different people who are uh, in involved in those organizations and what they're talking about um and uh, yeah uh, this oh, I lost my train of thought. As well. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the show. You're doing well. This is off the podium. This has always happened. So you know, it's, well, you know, dates. So I was off the podium. Yeah. Well, this is what we've just we've tried to realize actually recently, Ridian, that uh, you know, like we, we need to stop getting these medalists on the show. We're called off the podium for God's sake. Like screw the medalists. You know, they can yeah. have their moment in the sun. It's all about being off the podium. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly like connecting with with people um, and just making climate action accessible i think is uh really important uh you know looking at the black summer but bushfires that was really a bit of an activation moment for me about like shit i've got to do something about this i can't just wait for other people to do something and we're seeing you know in northern hemisphere there's been bushfire or wildfires everywhere massive heat events massive flood events you know climate change is here it's doing stuff now uh the uh, venue for the world championships for, for athletics next year, Oregon, uh, the US uh, Olympic trials this year, they, they actually had to um, 
postpone some morning sessions because of extreme heat there. So um, it's impacting sports, uh, you know, re-impacting regional uh, rural uh, sports, uh, community sports as well. Um, you know, if there's a big drought, how do you water your cricket pitch or your cricket oval? Um, uh, sorry, or, or you know, footy oval or whatnot. Um, yeah, it's going to be really hard to adapt to. Even uh, the decision to move the walks and the marathons from Tokyo to Sapporo was based around trying to um, reduce heat risk. Uh, didn't didn't really have pay off in terms of the conditions that we <laughs> had to to race in. But that that again just underlines um, the issues of climate change on on the buses to uh, do the drinks for the uh, women's marathon. Uh, there was a volunteer who was telling us he'd moved to Sapporo 40 years ago and when he first moved there they maybe had two or three days above 30 degrees per year and now he was saying that it's uh, two or three weeks uh, wow. a year so um yeah just you know it's going to take a big team effort for for us to to all reduce our emissions and and particularly coming from uh, wealthier countries we've probably done a lot more in terms of emissions and then again, as like sports people that are traveling, we're probably doing a bit more than the average person from, from Australia in terms of uh, emissions. So things that we can do to reduce our own emissions and then just uh, also you know, push businesses, push our sporting organizations, push governments to, to take the steps that they need to take to make uh, everyone able to reduce their emissions to zero as soon as possible is, is going to be critical. Great, great cause there, and good to hear so much work is being done there. Yes, Sapporo, host of a Winter Olympics, of course, in the seventies, and here they are getting you know weeks above thirty. That that's uh, that's crazy. The other thing I wanted to touch on, I mentioned this at the very beginning. Now I love on your Twitter, it literally <laughs> says Ridian the cat sitter. Now please, Ridian, as much as I love hearing about your Olympic exploits, I, I'm a massive cat man, so I, I really want to know. Uh, y- y- tell me more about cat sitting. I, I want to know how did this come about. What what do you do? Give me everything to do with the cats right now. Oh well, I kind of awarded myself that uh, nickname because uh, a few weeks before I was going to go off to the uh, staging camp in uh, Cairns, there was uh, I just come back from my uh, morning uh, training and done some shopping and was just unpacking the shopping and I heard this uh, meowing outside and I looked out the window and there's just this cat staring at me in the back courtyard meowing <laughs> at me and I was like what the hell are you doing here and I opened the door to go outside to um, like investigate and the cat basically just bawled it inside and I was like great I've got a cat now <laughs> 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 and, wow. yeah, the, 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 the cat didn't have a collar on and um, none of the vets were open on the weekend so uh, just had to look after it for a couple of uh, days until uh, uh, it was uh, Monday again and had to borrow someone's cat carrier so I could take it to the vet and fortunately oh, the so you cat didn't had, keep it you didn't oh, keep for, it fortunately the cat had had a microchip and it had, uh, had a home so I thought right. it was better off going to its own home and I think there's probably laws against just stealing random cats that walk into your house. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Maybe not not exactly, uh, you know, uh, encouraged basically. But yeah, it's just sort of a little bit funny being like, help, I've got a cat, what do I do? Because <laughs> we don't have any pets at home. So, uh, yeah, Has it encouraged you to get one now? Like when you get married, are you and your well, fiancé going to get a cat My fiancé is not much of a cat person, so I've got a bit of work ah. to do on, on that. But um you know, there's, there's time. We can we can work on it. <laughs> Plenty of time. Plenty. You can call it Ben. There you go. Call the cat Ben. You, you're welcome. You can have my name. Uh, oh, get a, couple, to... a couple of friends actually nicknamed it Tokyo for me, so I think that's, oh, might, that's might a good be one. its name. But, yeah, uh... <laughs> that works. Yeah, work on the fiancé. That, that's the hard part. But uh, just come home. Just like, oh, look, the, the, another the cat. Funny, 
the funny thing is, um, she's been my fiance's been sending me some uh, photos of where she's seen the cat like walking around over the back fence or whatnot. <laughs> Spot the cat. I've just been like, well, I'm not here. Have you told the cat that I'm away? <laughs> the cat misses you. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's gold. Love it. Please keep that on your Twitter forever. Just the cat sitter. I think okay. that's. That's perfect. Now, uh, Rudy, we like to close out our interviews with a series of fun questions. Now, these are based off uh, Team Canada questionnaire that they gave to their athletes prior to Rio and Pyeongchang and just a series of fun questions to get to know you. Now, they're easy answers. There's no right or wrong. It's your opinion. But if, as always, if you want homework... They ask you to draw a couple of pictures. So, again, uh, we had uh, bobsledder Ash Werner doing it. So, if you want to kind of compete with the winter athletes, you can be our first summer athlete to draw. If, if you're that bored there in quarantine, I can give you some homework. Oh, um, I've got to work on my drawing skills. Yeah, well, stick, stick figures are acceptable. Well, we'll say that. I mean, the first one here is draw a picture of a Canadian animal. So, if you've ever wanted to draw a beaver or a moose, you, you, you're welcome to. Um, what is your favourite ever Olympic moment? And you are allowed to answer your own Olympic moments, of course, too. Uh, huh, I don't know. I think probably um, for me, Kathy Freeman in uh, uh, Sydney winning the 400. And it's, uh, it's got to be it because, you know, it was just like really united the country. And, you know, it was only six years before that where it had been quite controversial for Kathy to have the Australian and uh, Aboriginal uh, flag with her when she uh, won the Commonwealth Games. So uh, to see everyone celebrate, her and, and she could uh, run with both flags and it was uh, applauded. I think it was a big moment uh, for Australia in, in terms of, uh, you know, taking a, a concrete step towards reconciliation. And, you know, we've got a long, long way to go. Um, you know, particularly there's always there seems to be an issue popping up in the AFL uh, and, and their, their cultures uh, there. But, you know, we're, we're making progress. And, um, you know, one of the other things that I do is, as well as being a... Uh, Sports Environment Alliance ambassador is I'm part of the AIS's uh, Share Yarn program, which is just sort of trying to empower athletes and they can be Indigenous or non-Indigenous to um, be a part of the reconciliation process and, and sort of help um, push those processes along within their own sports. So, right. um, yeah, for me, like that's that's an important moment uh, just as much because of that, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, no, definitely a, a where were you moment in Australian history when we all remember where we were watching that, no matter how old you were. So, um, yeah, 21 years later, we, we still uh, sort of, yeah, remember that vividly. Uh, if you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Uh, like one that's already hosted an Olympics or? Yeah, no, it could be anywhere. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, it could be, uh, it could be Hobart if you want to give it to us. I mean, anywhere you would like to uh, see the Olympics be hosted. Uh, well, I, I have to say I was pretty excited about um, Tokyo just because I really, really like Japan. But, um, you know, it's just, it's, just, it's just been there, so it's a bit hard to award it back to them. <laughs> <laughs> Give them the full experience, though, with the fans and the atmosphere and everything along those lines. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The, um, another, another country I like is Ireland, so maybe I'll award it to Dublin. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if they've ever bid for the Olympics, Dublin, but um, that'd be a pretty popular game, having it in Ireland. That'd be a fun place to have the Olympics, I can imagine. Yeah, may, may, maybe so. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. Um, in your spare time, what do you most like to do? Ah, oh, this is... Um, well, it depends uh, what's available, but I've got lots of uh, fruit trees around where I live. I've got a fig tree that hangs over the back fence. Um, Neighbours got a plum tree over the uh, driveway and there's 
a bunch of like crab apples and apricots and prickly pears across the road from me. So I really like when they're ripe, picking uh, some fruit and making some jam and, and sharing jam with people. I was going to ask that because I saw on your Instagram plenty of uh, jam pictures. So uh, yeah, is this uh, a race uh, walker secret or just a Ridian Cowley secret? Uh, I think it's just me. It's, it's something that um, I guess is a bit of a mindfulness relaxation thing as much as anything else. And, you know, I sometimes I'm a bit... Uh, crap with getting people gifts so if i cook my own jam and can just share some jam then people won't realize that and they'll, they'll think that i'm really uh, good and generous yeah that works <laughs> and, just don't listen before, to this interview <laughs> before, before i went to the uh, olympics actually i planted a couple more trees across the road because um you know there's already the fruit trees there it's like an unofficial orchard so uh, hopefully in a few years time there'll be uh, some more um, blood oranges and uh, crab apples uh, available and is that is that your go to jam? The blood, like, what's your kind of go to your favorite jam that you do make? Oh, absolute favorite has to be the crab apple. Um, nice. They're, yeah, they're, I guess not a super common fruit, and um, it's sort of almost cherry sized, but uh, it's a bit tart. Not it's not many people necessarily like it when they eat the fruit, but the uh, the jam is just out of this world. Wow getting me hungry now all of a sudden um i have sort of got a follow up question that very shortly but uh what is your favorite workout um i'm just going for a casual sunday three hour long walk (laughs) now now, did i i I think i i saw on one of the lead up uh sort of newscasts i did on channel seven and i'm not sure if it was you or one of the other walkers walking around albert park is that sort of a go-to place in, in melbourne that a lot of the race walkers do go to uh, yeah, so um, a lot of the walkers in Melbourne are kind of spread out geographically. I'm in the northern suburbs. Uh, there's a few people in the eastern, southeastern suburbs as well. And, and then my coach lives in uh, uh, St Kilda West and um, Jemima Montag lives sort of uh, a few suburbs down uh, next to the beach. So it's, it's basically Kinda central close. for us. Yeah. And um, you know, there's a good walking path along the beach. You can head down. Uh, I think we've only ever got as far as Black Rock, but you could probably keep going further down if you wanted in that direction. In the other direction, you kind of walk to the Yarra and under the West Gate and sort of to the Exhibition Centre and, and then back around. And then, you know, you can do that to the lake as well. So it's just really good for being able to get out there and have a long walk and um, hopefully not get uh, heckled too much by the cyclists as they're going yeah. past you. Well, I'm a big F1 fan and I've actually, like, I go there every year and I only, the, it was about two years ago, I finally took myself to Albert Park for the first time outside of a Grand Prix and it was odd because I'm like, I know exactly where everything is from a Grand Prix and all of a sudden I'm like, this is really weird. But I guess for most people in Melbourne, it's the other way around. You probably never go to the Grand Prix and it's just a standard lake and a park for you. So it's kind of weird when the Grand Prix's on. Yeah, and because of Victorian Institute of Sport and Lakeside Stadiums at Albert Park, it's actually yeah. a pain in the ass when the Grand Prix yeah. is on. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love it during the Grand Prix when you go past the Aquatic Centre and you see people still doing the laps and you've got the people who are kind of like gone up to the nosebleed section and just obviously just having a sneaky look at the cars as they're going around basically. So um, it's just a different it's, – it's hard to imagine when you're there and if you didn't know a Grand Prix was held around those streets, just how they manage it. Like it's insane how they can turn that parkland into a, a world-class, you know, Grand Prix circuit. Yeah, it seems to take him about a month by the side of it to set it up and take it down. So, um, you know, there's like three months or two or three months of the year where it's just uh, a bit of a hassle. <laughs> to yeah, well, you guys right now are loving the fact it's been cancelled two years in a row. You're like, sweet, great, extra months <laughs> so we can walk around. You know, screw the Grand Prix. <laughs> uh, no, um, Grand, Grand, Grand Prix is great to have, but yeah, it's, um, I suppose, small perk. Yeah, exactly. If you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? Um... 
Well, I think ask, asking me about that now, I'd probably say my fiance because I haven't seen her in five and a half weeks. Wow, <laughs> that that that's that's a solid answer. Five and a half. Wow. So but, you know, it's, it's not as long as some people have gone between seeing their family um, with the pandemic. So uh, you know, I've had it easy again in that respect. Do you have virtual lunches with her, like every single day? Like I'm going to call uh, you right now and we can eat a lunch yeah, together. Yeah, we've been we've been calling each other basically every day. Um, even when I was in Japan, you know, you get like a facebook messenger or whatsapp or whatever you can still do video calls um it's usually more being like dinner rather than uh lunch but um yeah it's not quite the same as um in person we've seen all the the videos recently of all the swimmers finally returning home so is she going to be waiting for you like at the airport i think it was um kayla McEwen had a dog waiting for her there at the airport i mean if you i mean your cat they can find the cat she can bring it you know to the airport there it is waiting for you as you arrive i'll have to put that out in the community facebook <laughs> <laughs> i want to uh, see it i, well, I, suppose, it I suppose melbourne's in lockdown at the moment so i'm not too sure um <laughs> what it'll be allowed in terms of whether it's a permitted reason to leave home to go and pick up an Olympian and take them back you know, <laughs> to their house. Happens once but, every four years. I mean, come on, like, we'll, you know. We'll, we'll see. Ho- hopefully, if, if I can't see her at um, the airport, I'll see her at home. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully. Um, now, it's kind of follow-up, as mentioning before, you mentioned about the jam, so I don't know if this will fit into this question, but uh, what is your favourite sandwich? Um, yeah, may as well just say crabapple jam sandwich, hey? That works. <laughs> Kind of uh, that that that's a good one there. Uh, second bit of homework, if you want to do it, there's a drawing here of what the coolest Olympic medal would look like, and uh, the athlete I'm using here, it's a bit of a strange one, but uh, anyway, uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Ooh. Um, yeah, that's a challenging one, isn't it? I'm thinking cat-like reflexes, just on the edge to be like. <laughs> And you know, I don't already have cat-like reflexes. Actually, if I had cat-like reflexes, I'd probably be in a uh, ball sport or a, a team sport or something like that. So Big that's, that's, that's how you know. those lines. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me, probably something like um, being able to turn invisible would be pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I don't know what I'd do with that. You could work in the race walk. You could just kind of like hide, you know, 5Ks from the finish line and zoom, well, there I am. Uh, just, <laughs> you're just, in the lead. Just hide in the pack. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They would know. You, they've got no video evidence or anything else beforehand. So uh, yeah, know, but then, then there'd be questions like, "Where'd you where'd you come from? You weren't yeah. you weren't racing. You weren't in the pack." <laughs> was that was that woman? Was it the New York or the Boston Marathon in the eighties or something like that? They found out she'd caught a train halfway through or something along those lines. She was an unknown and uh, big yeah, controversy. Yeah, that. I think that, that, that happens in a few uh, marathons. But usually, it's not one of those big city ones, and usually, it doesn't end up being like someone. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a five time winner of the Hobart Marathon. I just show up at the finish line. Hey. I won. There it is. Uh, good job. Um, what is the best candy in the world? Uh, um, no, it's pretty hard to go past milk bottles, I think. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. They don't get answered enough. I like milk bottles. Go for the milk bottles. Good answer. Uh, as a kid, who was your favourite sports team? Uh, favourite sports team? Hmm. I like to ask the tough ones here on Off the Podium, really get people thinking. Yeah, I thought, I thought you said these were fun. Yeah, well, <laughs> apparently I'm discovering they're not that fun. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose um, yeah, watching the Socceroos was, was pretty good, so I might, might go with that one, like especially yeah, in the right. Oceania glory days. Oh, yeah. Chalking, chalking up like 26-0, 31-0, just absolute floggings. 
Archie Thompson <laughs> scoring about 15 goals against American Samoa. I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, yeah it's, it's pretty, good to, pretty good to win a World Cup match, but it's not the same as winning like 30 nil. Yeah, exactly. And that just leads <laughs> us to hate the Italians all these years later after their diving exploits in the round of 16 in Germany, right? So we're still yeah, not over that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, everything Italy is great, but when it comes to their soccer team, I'm sorry, I just can't, you know, I'm a Ferrari man, but I can't not, you know, overpass the fact that they cheated Ass of a quarterfinal spot in the 2006 World Cup. Screw you, Italy. Um, <laughs> your favourite sports movie? Ah, uh, hmm, probably semi-pro. Ah, yes, good one. <laughs> I like it. I always, I always seem to ask this now, sort of with some of the sports we've had on recently. I mean, we've obviously touched on Kath and Kim Malcolm in the middle with race walking. Has there ever been race walking in a movie or a, a race walking movie that we should know about? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, I think I do recall. Um, that there was like a, a show in Canada that Bill Nye, I think it was, um, was uh, had like a few sketches where he was a superhero called Speedwalker. Um, <laughs> I'll have to go look that one up to refresh my memory. But um, maybe if you ever speak to Evan Dunphy, you can ask him about that. Yes, well, we're trying to get him back on the show. Um, I mean, he's a busy man now, bronze medalist. He's getting all these sponsors for the craft dinner and everything. He might be too big for our show now. I don't know. We got him yeah, at the right time. Uh, yeah, he's got, <laughs> got his own face on a uh, on a, a box. So that's exactly, pretty impressive. Where's your Where's your sponsorship deals for the the macaroni and cheese in Australia? Really, I want you on. Actually, no, cat litter. Probably not the best sponsor, but I mean, you love cat with the whole cat sitting thing. You could be on. Oh, a bag I just have of, to start uh, my own jam brand. I think. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Ridian Jam, coming soon. Uh, uh, the last one, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I suppose I've had the option to uh, or chance to, to move and live elsewhere, but I, I do really enjoy living in Melbourne where I am, um, particularly my suburb in Faulkner. There's just a really good community around. Uh, I've got, we've got a great community garden on uh, an old lawn bowls of green, so... Uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy uh, if I had spent the rest of my days there, to be honest. Beautiful. Uh, I, I, think I, could, I think I could live in a lot of places, but um, yeah. Falcons no place nice. like home. That works very well. Radiant, it's been a pleasure to chat with you today, mate. Before we let you go, anywhere people can sap out with you, social media, websites, anything like that you want to sort of uh, plug that people can follow you on? Uh, well, in terms of social media, uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, I've got a Facebook page. Uh, I think uh, it's about, you know, you can tell my age because I don't have like a TikTok or anything like that. That's <laughs> so. <laughs> that Kesha song. That's what I always say. It's a Kesha song, right? <laughs> yeah. What, what's a TikTok? Is that the sound that the, the clock makes? Yeah. <laughs> those biscuits. Remember those biscuits? That's what they are. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those ones. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like if, if you're interested in like what athletes are doing on uh, sort of sport and, and, and climate change, then you're following people like the Sports Environment Alliance. Uh Eco athletes. Um, there's another another group run by uh, the, by David Pocock, the uh, Wallabies player, and, and his wife called Front Runners. Um, yeah, they do a lot of good good work uh, as well. Um, that's those are some things that you can uh, check out. Um, I'm also doing uh, some some work for a charity called uh, Fair, Fair Share, who's having a, a fundraiser in October. Um, so they do they're like the Australia's biggest uh, network of charity kitchens. And, you know, there's lots of people doing it tough right now with lockdowns and maybe they don't necessarily have uh, work. And, you know, it's important to make sure that people have got food on the table and not just any food, like nutritious food. So being able to support um, that and sort of food security, I think, is um, 
you know, I, I, I like a, a good uh, social cause as much as anyone else. So, um, you know, make, help, if I can do a little bit to help people uh, make sure they can get through these uh, tough times, you know, I'm all for that. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to be supporting uh, that initiative as well. Fantastic. Well, um, so uh, that's, yeah. that's uh, Fair Share is spelled F-A-R-E, Share. Um, Perfect. I suppose fair is in like food instead of fair is in like fairness. But uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll help people get directed there. Ridian, uh, as I said, a lot of fun. Uh, keep up the great fight out there with all the causes that you are involved in. We look forward to seeing you return in Paris in 2024, and we also look forward to more cat pictures once you get one after your wedding, because I'm sure your fiance will cave and you will get a cat called either Tokyo or Ben. I'm going with Ben, but if it really has to be Tokyo, well, I'll have to get two, won't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll in, bombard in, you. We'll remind you. <laughs> in, in, in the meantime, as, as long as Melbourne's locked down and I'm working from home, I can just keep an eye out the window and take photos of any passing cats. And a big thanks to Ridian for his time there. A lot of fun. And I really do hope that his fiance lets him get a cat come uh, the, after the wedding or anytime soon. So uh, there you go. And for those uh, maybe listening outside of Australia who have never seen Kath and Kim, just maybe YouTube Kath and Kim walking and uh, get an idea of kind of their take on the great sport of race walking. Very funny stuff indeed. Plenty of stuff still to come your way. We're going to continue on the athletics trend in our next episode. Matthew Denny, discus thrower, fourth place in Tokyo, also competed in Rio. And a very interesting athlete because not only is he a discus thrower, he's a Hammer throw, throw up. I think that's the correct terminology. And uh, kind of had to choose between the two, but actually won a silver medal in the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in hammer throw. And uh, one of a very few group of people to compete in both hammer throw and discus at World Championships or Commonwealth Games levels in the same uh, same event, basically. So very fascinating chat with Matt, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy that one. So stay tuned for that one coming your way next. In the meantime, remember to hit us up on all the social media channels. Simply search for Off The Podium. You'll find us all on there. And also hit us up on all the podcast channels. You can subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest episodes. Go through our backlog, uh, back catalogue, I should say, the backlog of the back catalogue, and find all our old interviews and episodes that you may have missed along the way. And uh, we're enjoying bringing these to you as uh, we hope you also are enjoying them. Let us know what you think. Leave us some feedback. We'd appreciate the comments to let us know what you're thinking of the show. In the meantime, thanks again to Ridian. Thanks for you for listening. We'll speak to you next time on Off the Podium. Tony Devon is up and come, Tony